Welcome to the Frontline Conversations podcast, a platform that discusses issues around public policy and current affairs. We can't wait to share insights that matter to you. Are you ready to have the conversation? This is Frontline Conversations. Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you, gentlemen and, and lady. Um, seems like you're all friends. We are, we are the only strangers. Elijah might dispute that, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, just uh, by, by way of introduction, uh, my name is Calvin Mato from Frontline Africa Advisory. I'm here with my colleague, Sisago uh, Maposa from Frontline African Advisory. So thank you for agreeing to, to this podcast of ours. Um, so we are going to touch on a number of issues. Uh, I'm sure Sisago has sent you guys um, the things that we'll be touching on. So without uh, wasting much of your time, can, can we start with the introductions, uh, starting with Mark? Yes, good morning, everybody. My name is Mark Hayward, and it's uh, great to be with you all. Uh, I'm currently the editor of Maverick Citizen, which is a section of the Daily Maverick that focuses on civil society and human rights and social justice uh, in South Africa and internationally. But uh, before I uh, became a journalist again, I've been an activist for many years around the rights to basic education, to health, uh, to water and, uh, and sanitation. Uh, and it's great to be with you this morning. Thank you, thank you, Mark. Uh, Faranaz? Thank you very much. And uh, Mark Hayward was my ex-boss. Should I just start by saying that? But uh, yeah. as I say, every time we share a webinar uh, platform together, I often say, um, <coughs> I'm the one that bullied him and he never had a chance to bully me. Um, so yes, I'm at Section 27, which is a public interest organization that focuses on the right to health and the right to basic education. Um, and the work that I lead is the work impacting on the right to basic education. And we, the, the way we approach our work is to try and remove the obstacles to a quality basic education, like sanitation. Yes, thank you. Sanitation. Thank you, thank you for us. Uh, Elijah? Yeah, good morning colleagues, Faranaz, Mark, and Siseko, as well as uh, yourself, Chairperson. Um, my name is Elijah Mklanga. I am the Chief Director for media and communications at the Department of Basic Education, um, responsible for communication, but also coordinating such uh, across provinces. So I work with the colleagues in provinces uh, to communicate the work that is happening in the sector. But in public, I'm referred to as a spokesperson, but I'm mm -hmm. actually an official with real duties in the department. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, Elijah. Uh, just to kick things off, uh, Mark, I'll, I'll, I'll again start with you. Um, recently, we, we've uh, had our metric results released, and uh, it, it, it's my view that we, 
our kids, uh, our matriculants did well under the challenging circumstances of 2020 and COVID. Um, would you say that there is enough cooperation between teachers, parents, and government when it comes to education? Uh, good morning. I, I wish you didn't start with me because I think Anfar and Naz are much more uh, the experts on this than me. Um, but let me just try to answer your question by saying that I think that the way that the law and policy is set up in South Africa uh, is intended to facilitate constant communication and sharing and engagement between government, uh, between parents and between learners and students themselves. We have important structures, for example, such as uh, school governing bodies. But I think that everybody would agree that there remain major challenges around the quality of that collaboration and communication and the type of outcomes that, it's, uh, that, that it yields. And that those challenges are reflected in the greater and deeper challenges that continue to face our education system generally. You know, even if uh, 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 my fellow panelists, Elijah and Farinaz, might be of the view that uh, there is a minor improvement in educational outcomes at uh, the matric level when, when learners leave the schooling system. I think everybody would agree that uh, the education system is still far, far, far from perfect and still far from yielding the types of results that we need, both at an individual level for learners to go forward in life, into careers, uh, 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 but also at a country level, to be a country that is competent with the necessary skills to be competitive in the world economy, in the digital economy, and so on and so on. And I think that we would all agree that, that resolving this is one of the most important uh, challenges that South Africa uh, faces, because if our education system is weak, if we are failing, uh, if, if, if our system is failing students rather than students failing in the system, then the country will not be able to achieve uh, its, uh, its potential. And the last thing I would say is that an added reason why I think this is critical is because so much importance is attached to basic education by our constitution, which lists that everyone has a right to basic education and also differentiates basic education from other rights in requiring that quality equal basic education, something the government must do its utmost to make immediately uh, realizable. So uh, I hope that that answers parts of your question. Yeah, somewhat it does. Um, to, to Faranaz, as a follow-up to that, do you think that there is more that could have been done between parents, government, and the teachers? Instead of leaving everything in government hands, <coughs> do you think that 
the other stakeholders could have played a more bigger role in ensuring support for government in order to achieve better marks, for instance? I think it's, it's, it's quite a complex question. Um, the way our post-apartheid educational framework has been designed is somewhat of three tiers of government or three tiers of governance rather, with national at the very top making law and policy, then the provinces building and running schools, and then parents being involved at a school governing body level. Um, I think it's a good structure. And the idea around it has historical roots, which is that there has to be grassroots engagement with the functioning of a school and each school is surrounded by a community with different needs and so forth. So ideally, it should be able to work. The difficulty has been that our schools have for many years remained historically white, in historically white areas, historically black, and with that, a lot of the class issues that go with it. And our school governance judgment have reflected that with a lot of the historically white schools using their school governing bodies to assert language as a way of keeping their schools white, pregnancy policies at the expense of girl learners and so forth. Whereas governance in the poorer communities <coughs> is often difficult because parents are at work or parents just have less social capital to take on the principal in the school where needed and so forth. Or for example, where you have a school in a historically white area with black parents, there are always comments from the teacher, the school administration, that it's mainly the black parents that don't come to school when often there are difficulties with them having to get to the school in the area and all of that. What we need to do is address the disparities that occur at the school governance, school governance level. We need to ensure that our school governing bodies, particularly in the poorer communities where better quality of education is needed the most, that these are strengthened. Having said that, what I will say at section 27 is that in many of our cases that we have taken on, um, where our deponents have often come from our school governing bodies, our parent community. And even where we seem to have the most under-resourced uh, communities, largely communities that are unemployed and all of that, these parents still have the best interests of their children at the forefront of, what, of, their, of, of, of their desires. They want their children to succeed. And they have often come to us and been the deponents in cases. And one of the reasons they've had to do this is because even though we have school principals that sometimes are prepared to cooperate with us, they've often experienced intimidation at a provincial level where the provinces tell them, we won't give you the new building that you asked for, or, um, you know, we have been in trouble because we have come to you with our issues and so forth. So, you know, they that in that sense, it's been very good to have our school governing bodies um, coming to us and be willing to speak about the conditions of their school. At the same time, 
we need to make sure that school governing bodies are equally resourced in terms of skills and in terms of also provisioning. Um, whether or not it's a historically model C school or whether or not it's a no fee school in the Eastern Cape or Limpopo. No. Okay, thanks, thanks, Faranas. And, and Elijah, <coughs> from your side, um, from the department side, at a policy level, what, what has the department done, or what has government done to address some of the issues that have been raised by Faranas, especially the, the disparities between the model C or urban versus <coughs> rural schools? And, and what are some of the challenges that you face in trying to ensure that this uh, policies that address those sort of issues? Well, the, the challenges of the sector as we experience them now, they did not start yesterday. They go back to pre-94. We know that uh, before that we had 19 different systems of education in the country which after 94 were merged into a, a single system. And that work was completed in 1996. If you look at the South African Schools Act, is an act of 1996. But even that work did not start. It started the following year um, with SGBs being given powers. Before that, they were called school committees. Uh, but now they're school governing bodies with uh, real power that is uh, given to them by the act itself. And the democratic dispensation sought to also democratize education that gave more power to the communities to have a much greater say in how things are going to work in their localities. And um, from then it was really a transformation project to try find a middle ground because out of <clears throat> 19 systems, you needed to merge into one, but which one? Uh, <clears throat> a new one, but where do you put it? And the middle, the bottom, top bottom or way. So that has been the, the issue um, that we have had to, to face in terms of the management of that. But the other one uh, is in regard to what Mark referred to earlier that you have a constitution that says that basic education is realizable right now, full stop. It's a very short line if you look at it, very instructive. <clears throat> but then accountability becomes a complex matter because you have an MEC of education who's appointed not by the minister, but by the premier in a province. Um, many times the minister will be frustrated she wants to take action, but she can't because she did not appoint that MEC. It's appointed by the premier. So accountability becomes a problem. And it's important that we talk about that because mm -hmm. as Parana said, the delivery happens at provincial level. Uh, the policies could be great, but the delivery is another challenge. And uh, you'll find that in some provinces, people are still operating in the old homeland ways of doing things uh, because some of these officials are still alive. They are still there and they will tell you how things used to work. So that's what you also have. So the human element also has a huge role to play. And we see this from our side at DBE where you issue a circular and you instruct people 
to do it in a certain way. But when it gets there, the interpretation is different. Uh, when it gets to a district, it's not the same message. By the time it gets to a school, principals are implementing something that they were not told. And I'll give an example with the issue of undocumented learners, where we went mm. to court and there was a particular judgment which said all children must be admitted irrespective of whether uh, they have a document or not. But you still let school principals who said, no, we're not going to do it uh, because the policy says, and we said, no, you can't. There's a court judgment which says you must do this. And then they insist on doing that. So there's also a challenge in terms of cascading the information. It's a large sector, 12.9 million children, uh, 410,000 teachers, uh, 75 districts, uh, 889 circuit offices, and uh, you know, 25,000 schools. So it's massive. So for you to be able to uh, coordinate a sector as large as this one uh, from the center, it's, 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 it's difficult. Uh, it's doable, but it's difficult, slow. But the government itself, the ruling party itself has been aware of this, these challenges. That's why there have been changes that have been made every 10 years, uh, basically from curriculum to even the structure of the sector, the architecture of the, of the sector. That's why in 2009, a decision was taken to split uh, education into basic and higher education because there was a realization that if you leave it as this one huge beast, things fall through the cracks. So have a greater focus on one level of the sector and give the other one to somebody else. That's why we have since 2009 been able to focus on more issues with more people thinking they understand the sector more. It's simply because of the separation of, of the department into two, where we are now able to zoom in into particular areas. Um, we perhaps need to say between 2009 and now, some 12 years after basic education was created, what have we achieved? Yes, progress has been made, but there's still a lot of work to do. Talking about SGBs, SGB people, they really want to work but they've got problems of their own. One, they don't get paid for doing this work, which is in the act. And two, un unemployment is increasing. So they'll come to school to look after the affairs of the school, but they get nothing. Yes, we say, no, it's because your children is here, so it's in your interest. But at the end of the day, when they go home, there's nothing to put on the table. So some of them, that's why they're not even able to participate in the way that they want. Uh, some of them, look for opportunities in the school. You just need to look at the Corruption Watch report at the level of corruption at school level with some of the people focusing on the funds that are there for opportunities. So all of those things, they cloud the real work that needs to be done uh, in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, in the system for us to see the improvement that we want to see. Thank you for that. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Elijah. I think the conversations we've, we've touched on and um, some, some historical lie um, um, within the basic education sector. And uh, I guess uh, it brings to light the question of education and transformation. I'm sure we agree that there is a need for effective transformation, um, but uh, is this transformation taking place? What does it look like? What do we envisage uh, it to be? What is the end game of this transformation? I think I'll, I'll, I'll pause it to, to uh, Faraz to just answer that question and then um, Mark can take it off. 
Thank you very much, Siseko. Well, I, I think Mark touched on it earlier, but I was, um, you know, I, I, I was thinking that for me, what would transformation look like? And I would say that transformation must be, would you send your child to a school like this? Will your child be able to learn at a school like this? That must be the standard. And that must be the standard within the Department of Basic Education as well. So we know that, and a lot of our work over the last decade and in which we have uh, gotten many favorable court judgments in court have been around the resourcing of schools. And the resourcing of schools is important because what we know is that the poorly resourced schools are the schools that are having the worst educational outcomes. Not only does it affect the quality of education and the outcomes, but it often also impacts on the dignity of a learner. So we need to go back to the question, would you send your learner, your child to a school like that? Um, on the 24th of May, section 27 is going to court um, on what you will remember as the Komape case. So we, Michael Komape drowned in a pit toilet in 2014. We got a court judgment, I think it was at the end of 2018 that gave damages to the family. The court order then also said, you need to do an audit of the number of pit toilets in the province. Um, and then you need to come up with a plan to eradicate all those pit toilets. We also know we have the norms and standards for school infrastructure that said pit toilets shouldn't be allowed and they should be eradicated within three years of those norms being passed. That was around 2016, those, no those pit toilets should have been gone. But when we look at the plan that has been submitted by the department in terms of that court order, and when we look at what's been done around the eradication of pit toilets, it looks myself and my colleague, uh, Adila Hassam, advocate Adila Hassam, who was counsel on the case in the Komape case, we were talking about this yesterday as we were preparing to go back to court. And for us, it seems like despite the amount of time that's elapsed between the death of Michael and us going back to court, it feels like we have been frozen in time around the issue of pit toilets. There's been very little done around the eradication of pit toilets. There are different data sets around the number of schools with pit toilets in Limpopo. And all those data sets, government data sets, whether it's the SAFE initiative, the norms and standards report, um, the national education infrastructure management system, they all have different numbers on the number of pit toilets. And unless you have an accurate number, you don't know what to fix. At the same time, the numbers that have been fixed are so small. Also, when they give you a plan, it says that pit toilets will only be eradicated by 2030. Now, if you have a child in Limpopo in the education system right now, Will they still be in the education system by 2030? And in the meanwhile, you're sending them to undignified and unsafe toilets in the meanwhile. So for me, that is not transformation. What we need is, for us, reality is not changing. 
we need a government that takes these court orders seriously, that takes these plans seriously, that takes the safe initiative seriously, that prevents corruption in the handing out of contracts for the upgrade of toilets seriously. That would be for me transformation. If my children, I'm happy to send them to a school in Limpopo where they can use the toilets at that school every day. Thank, thank you, Faranaz. And, and Matt, your, your views? Well, you know, I, I agree with Faranaz. I mean, the end game of transformation is equality. Equality in access to education and equality in outcomes uh, of, of, of education. That, that's what the constitution requires. I think that's what morally is required uh, in, this, in, in this country. You know, and, and equality means that it doesn't mean that every school in the country looks like the best private school with all of its uh, facilities and bells and whistles and so on. But it does mean basic equality in sanitation services, in access to libraries, in access to teachers, in access to textbooks, in access to the internet, which is indispensable, has become indispensable in the, in, in, in the modern world. And if you can get to that equality, then you will have greater equality of outcomes. At the moment, what our education system is doing is perpetuating and replicating inequalities in the country. And very much those inequalities that are being replicated continue to be on the basis of race and class. And that is counter to everything that we have always stood for. <coughs> uh, that Elijah correctly said, you know, that we, we embraced in, in, in 1994. So, so, so I do agree with Farinaz, but let me just, because Elijah will speak in a second, reflect back, link this to what Elijah said. I mean, there's no, no question that 1994 you know, the, the task was enormous. You can't undo 350 years of racism and colonialism uh, in the matter of, of years. And, and, you know, Elijah very frankly just described the size of the operation, the number of children involved, the number of schools, the numbers of, 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 of teachers. Uh, it, it's an enormous, complicated uh, challenge. But having said that, and, and having full empathy and sympathy with, the, with, with those government officials who are tasked with this, I do believe that 27 years after 1994, or 25 years after the Schools Act, that we could have got much further towards equality. We, we probably couldn't have got to the end game by 2021, but I think we would all agree that we could have done significantly uh, better than we, than, 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 than we have done. And, you know, I'm, I'm not picking on my colleague in the Department of Basic Education, but, you know, it's interesting to talk about this provincial national split. Uh, and we've heard the same arguments that are made in relation to the constitutional right of access to healthcare services. But you see, what troubles us from the outside as civil society, NGOs and so on, is that ours is not a federal government, it's one government. 
uh, uh, with different allocations of powers between provinces and national. But national has a responsibility for norms and standards and the meeting of norms and standards in the schools. Uh, it is one political party, uh, the ANC, which appoints the MECs and appoints the national uh, minister of education that can work to eradicate the corruption uh, that has taken root in our education uh, uh, system. And there's a misallocation of resources. You know, Farinaz talks about the, 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 the terrible situation that faces children with pit toilets in, in Limpopo and in the Eastern Cape. And yet here in Gauteng, uh, you know, during the COVID-19 crisis, and, and, and the argument that Limpopo gives is we have no money. There's no money till 2026 to fix these toilets. But in Gauteng, we spent 431 million rand sanitizing schools over six months in the course of 2020. You know, that's, that's the antithesis of inequality, of, of, of equality and, 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 and good planning. So, so there are many challenges, but I, 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 yeah. I want to put this point on this, which is not to say that, you know, I think we have to find a way between government and civil society and parents and SGBs of going forward together on these questions, because that is the best interest of the child, that somebody like Elijah speaks as frankly as he has done on this podcast with us. And then we say as parents and civil society, okay, how can we work with you to overcome the challenges that you have identified here? No, thanks, thanks, Mark. And, and Elijah, before you, you respond to the two speakers, um, just, just to add on that, um, you as the department have called for learners to go back to school full time. So considering the issues that have been raised and the issues of um, infrastructure, uh, lack of infrastructure in, in, in our public schools, particularly rural schools, so how ready are you to, to receive learners on, on a full-time basis? What needs to be addressed and how do you intend on addressing those, those issues and ensuring that when learners go back, we're not still talking about the same <coughs> issues we we're talking about a couple of years ago, but we we are moving forward in terms of ensuring that the space for, for learners to excel is there so that when they get to school, then they have to face books and they don't have to worry about pit toilets, for instance. Yeah, uh, let's start with that question. Uh, the department has not sought to pretend that the situation is normal as we have it now, where children are attending in alternating days, sometimes weeks, uh, with the rotational approaches that are there. In fact, our research shows that the losses that we have suffered in the past year um, have uh, deleted some of the gains that we've made over the past 20 years, um, which means the losses that COVID-19 has brought on us are much more, in fact, much worse than what has been reported. So that's what they are saying. And they're saying that we cannot afford to lose any more time um, such that you know we, we are going to struggle to, to recover. In fact, one of the things they've said is that we shouldn't talk about recovering, we shouldn't talk about catching up because that is impossible, it will never happen. 
um, we need to find a way to reconstruct the program of education, of basic education in the country such that we are able to get back on track very quickly. Because if we're talking about recovering and catching up, we're looking at 2030, for example, and that's too far. Something that the system can't afford anymore. So we are saying as a nation, we need to begin the conversation of saying, what can we do to try arrest the devastating impact of COVID-19, which is continuing every day that learners are still attending um, using the, 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 the rotation approaches, which we've asked them to do as part of fighting COVID-19. So we have not said when that is going to happen and we have not said when that should happen. What we have said is that we need to look into the possibility of allowing primary school learners to go back to school. And then we'll see how we, we, we manage uh, the, the issues that may arise. In fact, this matter has been thrown into the public arena so that we are able to get input. It's not that we have answers. We don't have answers. We are looking at this matter from an education perspective to say, you have suffered losses. The losses continue every day. Bring them up, make people aware of what is happening because we are going to be losing a generation of children here who would not have learned the things that they were supposed to learn. The grade 12 of 2021 are the grade 11s of 2020 who did not finish their curriculum. Mm. So before 2021 started, they needed to start by finishing the work that they couldn't finish last year so that they're able to catch up and learn everything. Because the exam which they are writing this year is the one that was set in 2019. And as Uma Lucy said, even last year with the 2020 class, it said no changes are going to be made because they don't want any cohort of matriculants to have a tainted uh, uh, certificate because of some reason or, or the other. So, so that's where we are. Um, never mind at primary school where the learners forget everything that they learn every day. When they come back to school after a day or two of no learning, the teachers are forced to start again because the young ones have forgotten everything. But what's even worse is that um, the projects that they are given to do at home in those days when they are not attending, returns to school as it is. It's not done because the parents are not there. They are trying to make a living. So we have participated in the project of trying to save lives and livelihoods, but the casualty are the learners who are not enjoying the full benefit uh, of, of, of education. So some of the challenges that have been highlighted here are going to, to get much worse because of the situation that we are in. In the sector, we've got 27 focus areas. There's a tendency in the public space to focus on one or two, the ones that are easy to talk about. But when you talk about the stuff that happens inside the classroom, whether it's a properly built structure or it's an inappropriate structure which seeks to be fixed, the outcome there points to a different direction where learners in rural areas are starting to do much better 
if not the same than those that are in urban areas who have historically been going to more former model C schools. You just need to look at the parts that we produce um, recording the performance of learners at metric level or even in grades below that. You will see that um, there is a leveling of ground in terms of learning outcomes. I'm not talking about infrastructure, I'm talking about the curriculum stuff. Yes, infrastructure oh. impacts on good quality um, enjoyment of that education, but there is progress when we look at the, the learning outcomes of learners. Um, consistently, you are seeing learners in, in rural schools uh, improving uh, in terms of their performance. So, I mean, we can, we can go in any area, but you can see that the ground is shifting somewhat. Uh, some of the incredible international studies are also indicating as much. It takes many years to turn around an education system. 50 years ago or so, Singapore was down there at the bottom and it took them 50 years. Now they're right there on the top. So it has to be work, deliberate steps taken by everyone every day, making sure that everyone pulls together, same pace, same energy, with the same focus, hands on deck. But the legislative environment must also allow for that type of work to happen. It's not enough to say it's the same ruling party uh, that is in government. So from outside, we expect things to work. On a practical level, it's not. We also need to talk about the limitations and challenges brought about by the constitution. It's not working in our favor, it's not. We can take action quickly. You can move into a province quickly. You need to go to parliament, ask for permission and all of those things. Those things don't work. You see who the culprits are, but you can't get to them. There's no straight line. You need to go via somewhere. We need to talk about the constitution as well and say what changes need to be made there to strengthen the environment so that governance is tighter, so that accountability is more effective. So we, we really need to look at all those things because if we don't, it will be like this. We'll just keep throwing blame year after year and before yeah. we know it, we've gone through another 27 years and nothing has changed. Sorry, sorry to cut in, uh, Elijah. Um, based on what you just said, what, what have you done or what have you tried to do as a department to try and remedy the situation around legislation or the constraints brought about by the constitution, you as a department, by way of maybe policies, regulations, or even uh, new legislation? No, that's a good question. In fact, we are right in the middle of a process of uh, reviewing the entire set of laws that govern the basic education sector from the Employment of Educators Act to the South African Schools Act to the National Education Policy Act and all other policies that are there that need to strengthen. So from our side, we, we, call, it, we call this the Bella B, the, the Basic Education Laws Amendment Act. We are working on that. But even when you do that, there are people challenging that process because they feel their powers are being threatened. You want to take powers away from them because they are used to the old way of doing things right from 1996. So we, it's taking long because people are using their rights to go to the courts to challenge it in this way and that way. That's why we are not making as much progress as, as we'd like to make. So those are some of the challenges that we are facing. But there is a process which began about four or five years ago to review the entire 
a set of laws that uh, help us govern the basic education space. And then how far are you with those? No, we, we there was an update report. No, yeah. we, we've made good progress. We've made good progress. We are about to go to, to parliament now to, to present that, to say, this is what South Africans are saying. This is what we say. This is what we feel needs to happen. So we'll hear uh, what is going to happen. But you know that uh, COVID-19 has also had an impact on a lot of things that we do. We could be far with a lot of things now. Because of COVID, we had to suspend a lot of projects, a lot of pilots, a lot of processes. Many things have had to stop. That's why we are lagging behind in certain areas. Okay. All right. No, 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 no. Thanks for that. And I think we can just stay at, 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 the, at the policy level. Um, there is, uh, I'm absolutely sympathetic to the understanding that there are certain constraints which, which pro prohibit the department from moving forward, but there is sort of quick wins that can be established and put, put into place. For instance, we have a, a problem with, uh, with, with, with school dropouts. And so at the, at the policy level, what is the department doing to ensure that a child stays the full course journey and doesn't drop off um, 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 and finishes matric and, and, and carries on his studies? We've done a lot in that regard. You see, now you are talking about the, the real business of education, which is curriculum. We have oh. introduced 12 subjects. In fact, there are more now that have expanded the offering in terms of curriculum to make sure that learners find the, the stuff that they like in the curriculum so that they stay. We have introduced technology-based subjects. We have uh, introduced vocational and technical studies. You will know that uh, uh, we introduced technical maths, technical sciences, technology, uh, expanded agriculture as well, and many other subjects that, that were not there before in the curriculum. It's about 12 of them now. And we are doing that because the research said to us that learners are saying that they are bored. They don't see a point in continuing with education because they are not getting uh, what they want. It was uh, mostly academic and math and science. There was nothing else that they wanted to do. So now we've created a space for artists. Uh, there's a space for those that want to do a design, agriculture and all of those things. So that is there. So if from a curriculum perspective, we, we, have, we, have, we have done a lot in that regard, but also there are other things, I mean, that, that we are, we are, we are doing that should create interest among learners. But the real problem here is that you, the, the, the biggest um, dropout rate happens in grade 10, 11, and 12, more grade 11 than 12. And we said to schools, you can't keep a learner in grade 11 uh, because you want to look like you, you, you've, you, you've recorded good marks in grade 12. You need to progress learners so that they go to to grade 12, even though they might not have done well in grade 11. And that has worked. We have seen learners who did not pass grade 11 being progressed to grade 12 and passing there, going to university. Some of them are finishing this year and they, those learners had not passed grade 11. And some of those that had failed repeatedly, they end up dropping out. So we said learners must not repeat a grade twice. So we said to schools, make sure that you support these learners and after supporting them and they still can't do it, progress them to grade 12 so that they feel they have an opportunity to pass. And because of that pressure, 
most of them do well. They even get distinctions and bachelors so that they're able to go. But the real problem is unemployment where some of them come from homes where there are no adults and they have to drop out and go and work. So, so those are some of the things which are social in nature. They happen out there. Uh, there's not much that a school can do. Um, but we have said, if you are above 21, uh, you didn't get to grade 12, you can still come back through the second chance program and uh, register and write your exam in May and June. That's why we always have over 300,000 young people that never reached matric uh, that we that are now using the opportunity to, to rewrite their matric because we understand that some of them drop out not because they don't want to continue it's because of circumstances but at some point they can come back so we've created that environment for them to be able to come back register to get that metric it might be late but it will help them to go forward because with that certificate they can still register um, at an institution of higher learning so that's those no, are some thanks. of the things yeah. that we've okay thanks thanks elijah and and mark uh, going back to what what uh, elijah said do, do you buy into the story that um, the department's hands are tied and it's this the blame squarely lies on the on, on interested parties in ensuring that there's no reform of, of the education sector. Do you buy into the story? Look, you know, there can be no disagreement that there are some people who have used the law and used the constitution to try to protect privilege, access to education and inequalities in education. And Faranaz mentioned those, 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 some of those examples. But what I don't accept is that the department's hands are tied to the degree that Elijah suggests. That, that, that's what I, I don't accept. I, I don't think, I mean, I haven't been studying these constitutional changes or changes to the legislation that Elijah is proposing. Perhaps Faranaz might be able to comment on that. I don't think there's a problem with making changes that uh, improve governance and accountability, if that is what is necessary to do. Everybody agrees that we need good governance and that we need better uh, accountability. You know, where we are differing is on the fact that lack of oversight, lack of accountability, lack of governance has perpetuated problems and perpetuated the inequalities that exist in, in, in education. You know, I, but, but I, I do fear what Elijah has just been saying to us about COVID-19. Uh, insofar as, you know, he, he said, and I wrote it down, recovery catch-up will never uh, happen. The casualty is the learners. Uh, we don't have the answers. I, I can understand that you don't have the answers. But, but if the situation is that desperate, then we should be having a national conversation about this. Because if we are now postponing inequality in the education system for another 20 or 30 years, what are the social implications of, of, of that? And we are, because I can tell you as a parent, 
with a child in who is doing his matric this year in a private school that my child has experienced some inconvenience and some disruption, but his education hasn't been snatched away from him. His hopes haven't been snatched away from him and so on and so on. So, so, so you know, what Elijah is describing is for me a very serious crisis that we face that yeah. needs to be presented squarely to the country. And I'll finish on this point by saying that I don't believe that it's a crisis without, an, without answers. You know, our country was able to incur huge economic costs in implementing the lockdown to protect us from COVID-19. It should be prepared to incur huge economic costs or find the funding or find the means to help us get out of the crisis that COVID has, uh, has, has brought about. And if we accept that education is going to be a permanent casualty of this pandemic, then, then that is, a, I think, a terrible admission for us to live with and to face uh, going, yeah. going forward. Yeah, thanks, Mark. And Faranas, uh, your view? Yes, thank you. I actually would like to respond to a few things. Uh, sure. Let me start with the dropout rate. Um, there are many ways in which we can address the underlying reasons for dropouts that isn't just about progress of learners. Progress of learners is one solution and I'm not saying it's not the appropriate one, but we need to address the underlying causes. But people like Ursula Hodes at UCT have recently written about the increase in dropout rates that are likely to increase under the COVID period. This is very important. Um, and we need to have a plan in place to address not just the normal dropout, the retention for just normal dropout, but what this period of COVID, whereas Mark says people, you know, our kids have been slightly inconvenienced, disrupted, but their education is not wholly lost. And I think this has been the feeling of a lot of children where, you know, only about 70% of learners couldn't go online. 70% of learners fell behind in their learning. How do you address that? We can't just pass the buck and say, well, we all, we need solutions from other people. You need to look at what the core issue core curriculum issues are numeracy and literacy in, in the foundation phase and how you address that. We need to have a solution orientated approach to that. Outside of that, the GHS data shows us that yes, learners drop out from grade 10 more. For boy learners, it's often about economic reasons. For girl learners, it's uh, family obligations, pregnancy. How do you retain learners by addressing those underlying causes. Then on the Bella Bill, it's very interesting to know it's still on the table because this started, if not in 2017, I can't remember, or 2018. We commented we would support a lot of what is in that bill, but we've never been asked to. It's just disappeared off the table. We agree that there needs to be some changes to the legal framework, but these changes have to be in line with the constitution um, and with jurisprudential developments. 
um, but it's just gone quiet. So it's very interesting to hear what Elijah says. Then, finally, I That's just want to say, point, yes. um, is that Elijah has mentioned Singapore where things were incrementally improving and where they moved with deliberate steps. I'd like us to move in the Singapore direction with deliberate steps. And I want to use one example of where we could have worked together. And that is around the National School Nutrition Program. Last year, under COVID, we took government to court together with Equal Education on the National School Nutrition Program. That was to ensure that learners kept on being fed when they were still at home, but uh, learning from home and that schools were not completely shut down. There was a structural order in place. There's still a structural order in place, despite what Elijah has said in, 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 in community radio. And that is that government has to report regularly on what they are doing to increase the number of learners that are being fed at school. We then said where learners are being rotated and they are still at home, we should give food parcels, we should um, uh, uh, provide scholar transport, there should be national norms telling the provinces okay, we, what We to seem do. to have lost uh, Faranas. Uh, in the interest of, of moving on, gentlemen, as, as we are wrapping up. Am I back? Uh, so, sorry, Faranas, we, we seem to have lost you. Yes, yeah, we're lost. We lost you. Um, so sorry to, to, to cut you, but uh, we are we are running out of time. Um, just just to wrap up, um, gentlemen and, and the lady. Um, let, let's maybe two minutes from from each of you, the speakers, as as we we wrap up. Um, let's let's talk briefly about uh, the role of labor union. Um, do you think they have an outsized influence on? On, on the education sector, and there are maybe some of the stakeholders that are holding back the transformation of the education sector in, in South Africa. Um, let me start with you, Mark, as we're wrapping up. I don't really feel that I have enough detailed information to say yes or no on that, Calvin. Uh, yeah. I think unions play a very important role in our society, and the teacher unions are very important whether they use that power well or whether they use it badly or whether they use it well sometimes, badly sometimes, I'm, I'm not sure. But uh, you know, what I am clear is that, as I said a minute ago, is that the teacher unions, the civil society organizations like Section 27, Equal Education, the school governing bodies and the department which has the constitutional responsibility for this crucial uh, right, so vital to our development and our future, have to find a path forward together urgently to address these issues that we have been uh, debating, because the future of, 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 of millions of, of children uh, and their livelihoods uh, depends upon it. That can be my only appeal. And I think that the department has to play a lead in trying to find the convergence uh, that we need to fix our basic education system. Sure, um, and, and Faranaz, on the same it's question. very similar to what Mark is saying. Um, our unions are valid stakeholders in the education system, but they cannot dominate the education system. 
the priority is ensuring that learners are passing through the education system and acquiring the, 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 the educational outcomes that are necessary. Uh, government needs to strengthen its legal framework bravely um, when it comes to uh, issues around educators. Uh, we need to strengthen our professional bodies, especially when it comes to issues like violence against learners through sexual violence and corporal punishment and all those issues. But government needs to be brave. The main, the main focus, the main priority is ensuring learners are passing through the system with the right uh, skills that they need to acquire. Thanks, thanks. And Elijah, you, you, you have the, the final say. Uh, what, what's your take on, on, on that view? No, I agree with Mark. I agree with Faranaz. Uh, yeah, we all need and want the same thing. And uh, their final comments confirm exactly that, that we, we need to work together. One of the biggest achievements of COVID-19 from our point of view is uh, the, the value of partnerships and the value in working together, which is something that worked quite well. I mean, the civil society, regularly, um, teacher unions, SGB associations, everyone, we meet regularly and uh, we raise issues and we agree on what needs to be done. So when we say we don't have answers, we don't want to look like we're dictators. We want everyone to have their input and everyone to feel that their say is equally important like anybody else, especially if we say education is a societal matter which everyone needs to participate actively in. So, so we agree. Um, and at any given time, anyone all these organizations will use uh, any available instrument, whether you go to court or you go somewhere else to get things done. Let that happen. Uh, we need every resource, every assistance that we can get, any opinion, whether expressed in legal documents in court or we argue somewhere else, as long as we all understand that we are working towards the interest of the child, then we are, we are good to to go. In fact, the relationship does not have to be to be romantic all the time. It needs to be robust. It needs to be to be frank, and that's how things will happen. We don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to see things in the same way, but if we agree on what the ultimate objective is all about, then we are we are good to continue uh, working together as a country, as a nation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Elijah. Um, and on that note, uh, we are we are closing. Uh, thank you panelists for, for being with us uh, and being part of our podcast. Uh, Mark, thank you for your time. Saranas, thank you as well. And Elijah, thank you for, for gracing us with your time. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to continue this sort of discussions where we come together to put ideas forward in, in the interest of the child, as you said, uh, Elijah. So on that yeah. note, thank you very much, um, gentlemen and, and lady. Uh, and from us, uh, we, we thank you. And that's it. Uh, we, we've come to a close. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Cheers. Bye. To keep up to date with public policy and current affairs, follow us on our social media platforms. You can find us on LinkedIn as Frontline Africa Advisory, Twitter at FAA underscore advisory, Facebook. Frontline Africa Advisory, YouTube, 
Frontline Conversations and our website www.frontlineafrica.co.za. You don't.